If you guys want to open up your Bible, Psalm 76 is where we're going to start tonight as we continue our journey through the Psalms. As we do so, Psalm uh, uh, 76 is kind of, it's, it's one of the, it's one that I think is pretty cool Psalm. It's a Psalm that declares uh, the Lord Yahweh as the divine warrior or the mighty warrior. We have a few songs that we sing that are similar uh, about declaring the the fact that God is able to overcome whatever things are going on. And all the Psalms, when we come to a Psalm of Yahweh as the divine warrior, Yahweh as the mighty warrior, that's what the psalmist is emphasizing. He's saying, hey, God can get us out of anything. God can help us overcome any obstacle. Uh, and so it's, a, it's kind of an important as we come to it and as we as we recognize God's incredible ability, that we would also recognize that just because God is able to take things away, doesn't mean He does. And sometimes what we see in the divine warrior, not only going before His people and giving them great victories, but also the divine warrior allowed His people to, to suffer defeat. I always said as a coach, I learned more from a loss than I learned from a victory. And... Because in the loss, I recognized where my weakness was, where what, what, what things were messed up, what was going wrong. If, if Joshua had never faced AI, he would never have understood the concept about what happens in your life if you allow sin in the camp. Right? But now here we are, thousands of years later, and we read the story of Joshua at AI, and, and this, this defeat that cost real lives... Real people are hurt. God, the divine warrior, could have wiped all that out. And nobody would have had to suffer. But, but the people needed to learn what happens if you allow sin in the camp. That that sin in the camp, the sin that was a part of the, the army of Joshua was going to grow. And as it grew, it was going to infect other areas. And the loss would be greater. So there are those things that God allows even though he's the divine warrior that, that he allows us to go through sometimes the issue is not sin in the camp sometimes the issue is we need stronger legs so he has us walk we need stronger arms so while we're walking he has us carry a brother sometimes the issue is we need to be prepared daniel shared with us uh was this sunday daniel this sunday I lose time. It happens pretty quick. So Daniel shared with us that when we have those times of peace, right, between uh, uh, wars and struggles, that there's a, t- a time of preparation, opportunity for preparation, to be ready. It's too late to be ready when it's happening. We want to be ready before. But God's always preparing His people, even through the war, through the battle, to say, here's the things that you need. Here's the things you need to be considering. Here's the You need to be tearing down the high places. You need to be... Clean in house. You need to be taking care of these issues because things are coming down the line. So we have to recognize that. When we look at the Psalms of the divine warrior, the mighty God, the God who's able to give victory in every battle, we also need to understand that the same God who's able to give us victory is the same God that's willing to give you strength so you can walk it. Who's willing to give you endurance or perseverance. The same God who's willing to give you what's necessary for you to face the things that you're facing. So when we look at them, when we come to them, as we're going to look here in just a minute, 
at Psalm 76, we not only want to see God mighty to save and God able to deliver and God wiping out the enemy, but you also need to picture it not in terms of God delivering me. I'm not saying God doesn't do that because he absolutely does. But you also need to see sometimes God deliverance comes in giving you the strength necessary to walk it. Right? You get what I'm saying? God could have took everything uh, away that Anna Lewis had to go through when she had cancer. Right? Is God able to just say gone? But he didn't do it. He had her walk the whole thing. Surgery, chemo, all the stuff. Was there a purpose in all that? Absolutely there was. Still, there are still purposes she she hasn't even fully realized yet. That God accomplished through all that stuff. So we want to recognize that. We want to see that. I love the Psalms of the warrior, the warrior God, of what God is able to do and how God is able to move and so I, I want you to hold on to that. And it doesn't stop us from praying for deliverance, right? Does the Bible say, do not pray for deliverance? No, it's okay to pray for deliverance. But we have to understand sometimes how deliverance comes. It's not always in the removal of the obstacle. Keep in mind the letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Everybody remember those? There's a church there called Smyrna, right? That, that we look at and we see Smyrna is a persecuted church. The, the, and Smyrna as a local church, the real church being written to, was going through persecution. And I'm sure they're calling on God for deliverance. But what did God tell them? Be faithful to death. And I'll give you the crown of life. So God's, in essence, telling them, I'm not taking you out. Just remain faithful all the way through. I'm with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. So if God says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, when does he leave us or forsake us? Okay, so God's with us, right? To give us that strength. And we want to be able to rely on that strength. So look at Psalm 76. Here's how it begins. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. Now when we look at the Psalms of Asaph, I tend to look at the Psalms of Asaph as Psalms of exile. Uh, Psalms that were written during the time of the two kingdoms. You guys with me? Judah and Israel. We talked a little bit about that Sunday as as Daniel taught us. So we have Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Judah who uh, at least attempted to follow God. uh, Israel which didn't even try. The people who wanted to follow the Lord moved to Judah. The people who didn't want to have nothing to do with the Lord moved to Israel. That kind of divided the people. Um, So when the Psalms of Asaph often are are Psalms that are born, birthed out of that time period. Okay? So you've got the divided kingdom. So when he says, in Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel, he's saying everybody knows God. Everybody in the nation. Just because the nation is divided doesn't mean you don't know God. Does the Bible teach us that now? What's it say in Romans 1? Does it say in Romans 1 that there are people on earth that don't know God? It says everybody knows God. The, The problem with the condemnation of mankind is that they don't worship the God they know. The Bible says that His eternal power and divine God, uh, Godhood or Godhead is clearly seen. So that they are without excuse. You guys with me? Now how is it that God has revealed Himself? He always reveals Himself through revelation. We can't know God 
apart from God revealing Himself to us. God reveals Himself to us, right? We talk about several things, right? You've heard me talk about the uh, that I got a, a muscle in the middle of my chest, about the size of my fist, that pumps like seven hundred thousand gallons. It runs day and night, never stops, and it runs on donuts. So, you you really need me to prove to you God exists? How's that occur? And so, when we consider that reality, when when He says, "Look, God is known in Judah, and He's and He's understood in in Israel." The reason God's known and understood, He's going to define for us, is the temple. And how is it that God was known in the temple? Because God condescended. God came to us. It's an important concept for us to grasp. We didn't go to God. Right? We can't reach Him. We have no hope apart from God. God so loved the world that He did what? He gave. He condescended. He came to us. Is it any different in the Old Testament? No. How did the children of Israel, how did Abraham know God? Abraham didn't bump into him one day on the road. What happened? God came to Abraham. How did the children of Israel know God? He condescended to him. Specifically, look at verse 2. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Remember, Zion is just an alternate phrase for Jerusalem, the mountain of Jerusalem. So he's saying God, God's presence is in his temple. Now, do, do, when, remember when we went through 1st, 2nd Kings and Chronicles, we saw as Solomon prayed over the temple, what happened? The Shekinah, or the Kabod, the, the glory, the, the light and weight of God moved into the temple. And the cloud was so thick, remember the priests had to run out. So, so what was that? God condescending, coming down, revealing himself to his people. So it begins as he looks at the divine warrior, the God who delivers, the God who saves. He says, the first thing we want to understand, God came to us. And he he didn't just come to one kingdom. He didn't just come to good people. He didn't just come to certain. He came so that all would know, right? So that the light would shine among the nations, the goyim. So God's purpose was that all mankind would know. And so as as he comes down specifically here in Salem... Uh, And in Zion, he says, There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword of battle. So what's he saying? He's saying God in his presence is able to utterly abolish the weapons of the enemy. Right? We remember stories like that? We talk about Shennacherib, right? Remember when we talked about Shennacherib? I said that's a name you might want to look to name your next child. Because, you know, we're always looking for names not very many other people use. I have never run into another Shennacherib. So uh, if, you, if you name it, you, could call him, you can call him Little Rib for, for short if you wanted to. But Shennacherib, remember, was from Assyria. He's come to wipe out. He, he told Hezekiah, don't even pray. Your God can't deliver you. Right? Remember, in one night, God did it. Didn't need anybody's help. One angel. 186,000 soldiers obliterated. Shennacherib runs back home. Army defeated, the weapons destroyed. God doesn't need help. God doesn't need... So God is able to deliver that way, right? So he, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, we know God because God condescended to us. He's revealed himself to us. And he is able to destroy all the weapons of the enemy. Right? He is able to do it all. And then in verse 4, he looks to him. He's looking to God. You see his, his eyes lift up. You are more glorious and excellent 
than the mountains of prey, or than the eternal mountains. Uh, you are you are greater and more glorious than all of creation. It's kind of the idea that uh, that he's laying out there poetically. You are Yahweh, the mighty warrior. You are God, able to save. And then here's how he describes those enemies of God. Look what he says: the stout-hearted were plundered. The stout-hearted would would be a picture in Hebrew of the valiant men who are in rebellion to God. So these guys who, you know, I'll never bow my knee. These guys who come before the Lord, they're plundered. It says they have sunk into their sleep. So the picture is, when he says that, it's like they saw God and passed out. The, the idea, I just want you to kind of hear the, the, the irony that's going on in the psalm. It's like the stout-hearted, the rebellious, the mighty man, he's coming against God, but when he sees him, he faints. He falls asleep. He, he, he's totally ineffective, right? He, he can't do anything. He just, he just comes up and faints. You guys ever seen a fainting goat? I heard, I, I, I guess that's it's bad, but I, I thought it was funny. But uh, last time I said something about fainting goats, I got lectured after church about that. That's mean. But I think it's kind of cool to watch them, you know, scare the goat and the goat passes out. Apparently it's a genetic disorder, so maybe that's not so good. But it's kind of like that. The stout-hearted man's like a fainting goat. He sees God, falls straight away. Look what happens next. And none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. So nobody stands before Yahweh the mighty warrior. You want to read sections that talk about Yahweh the mighty warrior, we're talking about Revelation chapter 19, when it says Jesus Christ returns and He comes to the valley of Megiddo. If you guys go with us to Israel, you'll get a chance, probably on the first or second day, to stand up on Mount Megiddo and overlook the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley runs somewhere in a neighborhood of 180 miles long, uh, very wide, you can see across it. It is, according to Napoleon, the most perfect battleground. You know it by another name. It's called Armageddon. The Bible tells us that Jesus is going to tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God alone. He doesn't need anybody's help. He's going to pass through the armies. And the Bible says that the grapes of wrath that he tramples <clears throat> is going to come out of the winepress and flow to the horse's bridle. So it's talking about that last battle. Whether or not it's, it's literal, literally going to be that deep, or it's just telling us, man, this is going to be a crazy battle, and Jesus doesn't need our help. How come? Because He's Yahweh, the mighty warrior. All He has to do is speak the word, right? And all the things of creation that He holds together comes apart. So... That's the emphasis he's making. Nobody can stand before God. Nobody. That's why the Bible says, in order for you to understand knowledge at all, where do you begin? The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, right? That's the kickoff. That's where we want to start. The fear of God. So, So recognizing God's might and God's power and God's ability. <clears throat> the good news for us to hold on to is that this is not a God of spite or a God of hate or a God of destruction. What are we talking about? A God who's in his very essence is, according to 1 John chapter 4, love. 
The Bible describes it this way. God so loved the world. Did God ever have to condescend and reveal himself to man? Couldn't he have just started over? But he wants to express his nature to mankind. And so he condescends to express that nature. He condescends to be a part with us. Verse 6, he says, At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, the chariot and the horse were cast into deep sleep. Now this is a little different. The chariot and the horse is a metaphor in Hebrew that speaks of all the political and military power of a nation. So if you picture it, just like the mighty men we talked about earlier, now you've got the tanks and the planes and the ships and the, and the tools and the weapons of warfare rolling up on Yahweh, the mighty warrior, and at the sight of him, they faint too. If we look at uh, a lot of people when they talk about the Battle of Gog and Magog. Are you guys familiar with the Battle of Gog and Magog? A lot of discussion, whether that's already happened in the past, whether that's a future event. <clears throat> I tend to, to feel like it's a future event. I, I don't know if I can prove it or not. But it doesn't make any difference. The story of the Battle of Gog and Magog is the same. What happens, or, or the feeling is, the, the interpretation is that uh, Gog and Magog are going to come against Israel. And they're going, to mar- they're, going to, they're going to launch their great weapons of warfare. And what's God going to do? He's going to cause them all to faint. Not one weapon, not one missile, not one thing gets through. It's interesting because Ezekiel describes them as spending seven years, I think, finding the weapons and burying them. Marking the bones of the dead with a special mark so that special burial parties could come through later. And bury the the people who were killed by those weapons. just seems interesting. In their day, it didn't make any sense. In our day, it makes a little bit more sense, right? Whether or not we're talking about some type of of nuclear or biological weapons being used. It makes sense that it would be done that way. But the point is, Yahweh the mighty warrior didn't need anybody's help. When the weapons see him, when the chariots and the horses see him it says they fall into a deep sleep they just faint they just stop planes stop flying why is it that a plane is able to fly people think that that the laws of nature somehow exist outside of god they don't the reason there is gravity is because god says there's gravity If God decided there wasn't gravity, it'd go away. The reason things work the way they work is because in God's world, He established it that way. Whose world is it? God's, right? In Him all things consist, have their being, He's holding it all together. All God has to do is say, yeah, planes don't fly no more. And what happens to planes? They don't fly no more. It's, it's really that simple. God the mighty warrior. And so I think this is what he's talking about here when he talks about the horse and the chariot. Remember, it's a metaphor for military and political power. All the world can run around and shout and shake their sabers and say, God doesn't exist. And what does the Bible say about that? Who says, God, there is no God? What's the Bible say? Who says it? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why is the fool called a fool? Because he knows better. He knows better. Not, he's not called a fool because he's just dumb. 
He's called a fool because he knows better. Think about it. Jesus told a story, right? Between a wise man and a fool. They were builders. And one built his house on what? And one built his house on? And did they know better? He's a builder. You think a builder doesn't know you can't build a house on the sand? That's why the Bible said he was called a fool. The fool builds his house on the sand. The wise man builds his house on a rock. Same way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. He knows. The wise man, he, he understands. Because wisdom, knowledge, understanding begins with God. In Christ are hid all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Now what Colossians tells us? In Christ. It's all in Him. So God, as a divine warrior, able to do all these things. Then look at verse 7. Again, He's more emphatically looking at the Lord. You yourself, He says, pointing to God. You yourself are to be feared. And who can stand in your presence? Man, you ever heard that phrase before? Who can stand in your presence? It's interesting. If you, if you just hold your place there, flip over to, to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2. This is what Malachi had to say. Speaking of the coming of Messiah and the judgment, the future judgment of God. Who can endure the day of His coming? By the way, those are rhetorical questions which demand an answer of nobody. Right? Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For he is like the refiner's fire. That's what Malachi had to say. What about, uh, let's take a look at Nahum. You, every once in a while you've got to look at a book you haven't been to in a while. Nahum, uh, very short, short little book. Nahum comes right after Micah. Nahum 1.6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Who can stand before God on the day of his judgment? Well, while we're considering that, there's a famous verse immediately came to mind when I first looked at this, and it's an easy one to find in Revelation chapter 6. If you flip over to Revelation chapter 6, and we'll look at the, the beginning of the the tribulation period it's one of the reasons why i am uh, uh what is known as a premillennial uh pre-tribulation eschatological pastor which means my study of end times i believe in a literal millennial reign where jesus christ comes and rules i think that his <clears throat> Calling of the church will happen prior to the millennial. That's pre-millennial. And I believe that it will come prior to the tribulation period. The Bible tells in Thessalonians that we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we won't suffer persecution. Doesn't mean we go through hard things. When the Bible talks about wrath or gay, it's talking about the predisposed judgment of God that's poured out on the earth. Now, everybody don't agree with me, and that's okay. I never have minded if anybody's wrong. It's okay. I, I'm more than happy. Uh, and, I, and I love talking about it, and I love debating it, and I love talking to all millennialists and post-millennialists. 
We're all brothers. We're all believers. That's not the point. But when we look at Revelation chapter 6, I see Revelation chapter 6, the beginning of the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 1 is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is the time of the church. You have seven letters to seven churches. Prophetically, it covers the entire church age, even though each letter is to a specific church at a specific time, going through specific events. Chapter 4 of Revelation begins with the phrase, come up here. That's where I see the rapture of the church and the church in heaven in chapter 4. In chapter 5, I see the song of the redeemed. You have redeemed us. A song sang to Jesus, the Lamb, the, the one who has redeemed mankind. Chapter 6 begins with the breaking of the seals. The four seals or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. The first one I see as the Antichrist. That he comes pretending to bring peace. But he brings a sword, and what follows behind him is war, pestilence, and death. So, so just kind of as an overview. Chapter 6 through 19 is the, the period of time in Revelation that we talk about as the 70th week of Daniel. The final seven-year prophetic period of time that we await. Uh, we come to chapter 19, we have the Battle of Armageddon. Chapter 20, the Millennial Reign. Chapter 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth. And we live happily ever after. See, you never thought I could do the whole book of Revelation in like three minutes, right? So, just an outline. But as we look at Revelation chapter 6, and and what I see here in Revelation chapter 6 is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. It has begun. Look what it says in verse 12 and on. It says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal... And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. Now, I want you guys to look at that. we got a lot of stuff going on right now. People may not agree with me about blood moons. Are blood moons real? Sure they are. Blood moons are real. Does the Bible talk about blood moons? Absolutely. It talks about the moon being, what was that little phrase? Four-letter word. It's important. Like blood, right? Like blood. So the moon's going to look like blood, like a big red moon. When I look at Joel chapter 2, which talks about the blood moons, Revelation chapter 6, the emphasis that I see scripturally is not on a literal moon of blood or a literal day when the sun ceases to shine. What I see is him saying, the earth is going to move The earth is going to quake, and you will not miss the day of the wrath of God. You would not miss it any more than you would miss the sun going out or the moon turning to blood. You may disagree with me. There's a lot of guys selling a lot of books on blood moons that that say incredible things are going to happen. I I don't agree with them, but that's one of the beautiful things about prophecy, right? There's space for that, or no? I think there is. When he says... That the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. I think he's telling us these signs you can't miss. When he talks about the earth quaking, he's talking about the whole earth. You ever had a global earthquake? So the whole earth shaking. Anybody going to miss that? Because if the earth shakes here, but it don't shake in China, does China know we had an earthquake? But if the whole earth shakes, nobody missed it, right? Or if the sun turned out, turned off, 
and the moon turned to blood, is that anybody in the world going to miss that? Because for these guys, the sun's not shining. For those guys, the moon turned to blood. They didn't miss it. Everybody is going to recognize or understand what has occurred as the wrath of God comes out. Look what it says. The stars of heaven fell to the earth like a fig tree, drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. The sky receded like a scroll when it's rolled up. Every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Big earthquake. A lot of crazy things going on. The kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountain. And what do they say? They said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. So who's sitting on the throne? And from the wrath of the Lamb. So we have the, the day of wrath from Yahweh, the mighty warrior, who can save us. Who can stand before the Lord God Almighty on the day of His wrath? Because on the day of His wrath, ladies and gentlemen, mankind has had time. Time to do something with what God has given. What has God given? For God so loved the world that He gave what? His only begotten Son. His one and only unique Son. He gave Him to die for us that we might be able to become the righteousness of God. So, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for you and I. Or, we face the wrath of God ourselves. And if we face the wrath of God ourselves, who can stand? Nobody. Nobody can stand on that day before Yahweh, the mighty warrior. Who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? Psalm 76, verse 8. You cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. So what you see in, in the psalm is the total sovereignty of God. Globally in charge. You got mankind will, scientists will always say the Bible is so ridiculous. Does the Bible not know that there's no possible way for the earth to stand still and Joshua to have a long day? What do you mean there's no possible way? I'll show you right here. The Bible says it happened. See, the problem for the scientists, he don't begin in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if God says it, it happens. Period. Whether it makes sense or it don't. Is God able to suspend the laws? Well, I would say He has. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus ascended into heaven. That's the opposite of gravity, isn't it? That He ascended, that He went up. What about where Jesus walked through a wall to be with His disciples? Oh, you say, Jackie, that's God. Of course he can do that. Oh, let's do Philip. Remember Philip? Ethiopian eunuch. Sitting with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's leading them to the Lord. He baptizes them. And what's the Bible say? God took him and put him out into another city. Just like that. What is miracles if it's not, if it's not that very thing? God suspending 
laws he created in order to accomplish his plan and purpose. So he's saying, look, the earth stood still, the, all the heavens, everybody is silent before the judgment of God. When God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. So God's goal, he wants to uh, deliver all the oppressed. What does the Bible, when the Bible says all the oppressed, is it only talking about, or is it talking about people who are slaves, or people who are poor, or people who are suffering? Jesus said, you are all slave to something. We are either a slave to sin, or we're a slave to Jesus Christ. But you gotta serve somebody. You're a slave to somebody. Remember the Jews said, what are you talking about? We have never been a slave to anybody. Are you kidding me? They've been slaves to people longer than most other people have been. So, the idea of him delivering the oppressed. Delivering the oppressed. Then he says, surely the wrath of man will praise you. Surely the wrath of man will praise you. Scripture tells us that the wrath of man cannot accomplish the purposes of God. So what does he mean when he says, the wrath of man will praise you? He's saying that man in his, the outpouring of man's wrath cannot upset the plans and purposes of God. No matter how crazy man gets, no matter what things man does, ultimately man cannot stop the purpose of God. The wrath of man will praise you. Man can do whatever he wants. What's it say in Psalm 2? The Lord will laugh. He will laugh. What, you can't do it. You can't overcome Yahweh, the mighty warrior, the sovereign God, the, the all-powerful one. So the wrath of man will praise you. The remainder of wrath you will gird for yourself. So, so he says, the picture is, man's wrath is, is, is small compared to God's. It's insignificant compared to God's. Man's wrath can't accomplish anything, but God's going to store it. Right? Doesn't Paul tell us that in Romans? They're storing up wrath for themselves for the day of judgment. God's stored. God holds on. He's got bowls to hold that in. And one day he'll pour it all out. The wrath of man. The wrath of man. Man's anger, animosity, and hatred toward the God who condescended to reveal himself. To provide a way for us. So... He goes on in verse 11 and says, Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around Him bring tribute to Him who ought to be feared. So that's covering the whole world. Who is He saying when He says, Make vows and pay them? He's talking to the Jews. Right? The Jews had certain feast days, certain ceremonies that they were supposed to be a part of their life always. So God is laying out through the psalmist, Make your vows and pay them. Do the things that God expects. What's he say to the rest of the world? <coughs> Pay tribute. What's he talking about? Honor the Lord. Honor God. I would say we in, in our current state in the world are as opposite to that as we can possibly be. At least here in the United States. To honoring the Lord. But that's what he's talking about. Honor God. Honor the one who shall be feared. Why? Because he shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome or fearful to the kings of the earth. 
What's he talking about? God is going to rule all. What's another way that the scripture tells us this? In Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. They're declaring Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ as sovereign. Every knee will do it. Every knee. That is God the mighty warrior, able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. But then when we come to Psalm 77, we, we, we take the reality of the power and the majesty and the sovereignty of God. And we take that, and then we put it into a package of disappointment in life with what God's doing. Psalm 77 is probably a psalm during the exile written by Asaph. As the children of Israel, uh, really as Judah is conquered and taken into captivity in Babylon. We've talked about it before, right? That favorite verse that many people have, they put it on their refrigerator from Jeremiah 29.11. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. We remove that verse out of its context and we hold on to that as, man, that's... That's encouraging, and it is a very encouraging verse, but we, we don't want to remove it from its context. Who was it given to? People who were being enslaved, families that were being torn apart, mothers who would never see their children again, fathers who would never see their children or their wives again, children who would never see their family again, going into slavery, being sold, and God telling the people, go, live a life, build your home, and know that I am doing something good in your life. You ever felt like God forgot about you and He's kind of let it get all spun out of control? Well, that's what Psalm 77 is about. Psalm 77, Asaph, seeing all that destruction, probably having walked through it, experienced it, now looking back maybe a few years later, look what he says. I cried out to... To God with my voice. To God with my voice. And He gave ear to me. So he's saying, I cried. He's saying, I cried out. I cried aloud. Not like, you know, I, I you know, prayed in my mind. No, he's saying, I'm mourning, I'm weeping, I'm crying. It's, it's, a, it's a cry of, of emotion. It's a cry of emotion. And I think sometimes one of the things that Sammy Tanago, if you guys remember Sammy... He was uh, from Egypt. He came and shared with us how to minister to Muslims. He's going to be coming again, hopefully, pretty soon. But as he, one of the things that he laid out for us is that the, the emotion that is in the Middle Eastern people is greater. We're more stoic. We don't want anybody necessarily to see uh, the emotion that we're going through. But in, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, Talking about Jesus. Listen to what it says. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, listen, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. So even Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, he cried out with a loud voice to God. He, he, he cried out emotionally to God. The, right? The Garden of Gethsemane tells us that 
that as he was crying out to God, he did what? He sweat great drops of blood, right? As he was going through the torment there, looking forward to the cross, perhaps even experiencing the dread for the first time of separation from his father. And so he cried out vehemently. Vehemently is a, is a word, very passionate, very fervently. And so he's, he, this is the same thing that the psalmist is saying. I, I cried out to God. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. So, so sometimes when we look at phrases like that in the Bible, we, we temper them down. So what he's saying, I've got a major, humongous problem in my life. And in the day of that humongous problem, I cried out to the Lord passionately and he heard me. So this is what he's talking about. Great trouble, great disappointment. He says, my hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. So the, the picture that he's given, I'm, I'm reaching for something I, I can't grab a hold of, but I'm reaching for it. I'm re- I want to be able to lay hold of the comfort that God has, but, but I can't quite grasp it. All night long I reach. My soul refused to be comforted. So no matter how much he cried, no matter how much he prayed, no comfort came. He, he wasn't experiencing comfort. And I, and I think part of the reason we're going to see in the next verse. He says, I remembered God and I was troubled. I remembered God. I remembered, just like we read in the earlier psalm, God's ability, His strength, His power, His might, His sovereignty. But I find myself right now in this horrific experience so I remembered God but I was troubled and I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed and those two things are part of the problem when I remembered God and was troubled I am placing myself in a Man-centric environment. In other words, I have taken God outside of being central, of being God, of being sovereign and all-powerful, and knowing what He's doing, and I have said, no God, you're not doing a good job of that. Let me put you over here, and I'm going to stand in here, and I'm going to say, the world revolves around me. I remember you, but I'm troubled. You're not doing things the way I think you should do them. And if we're honest, is there somebody in here who has not felt that way? And so what did he do next? In an effort to comfort his soul, the next, very next thing it says he did, I complained. I complained. What, what did that accomplish for him? What's the scripture tell us? And my spirit was overwhelmed. I complained. I complained. I used to say, you know, sometimes you just got to vent. Any of you guys with me? Sometimes you just got to vent. You just got to let stuff off. You gotta, it's like a pressure cooker. And you got to just let stuff off the pressure cooker. You can't, you can't allow all that pressure to build up. Otherwise, that pressure is just going to blow up. It's going to get all over everybody. So what do we call that? Well, sometimes we got to vent. I got to vent. I got to find somebody safe I can vent to, right? I, I vent off all my frustration. I, I pour off all this filth that's in my heart. On somebody else, and then I'm better. Was that what the Bible said here? I complained, and what happened? What did it say? I complained, and my spirit was 
overwhelmed. Oh, that doesn't sound like it made things better. Psalm 29, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 29, verse 11. I keep this one marked in my Bible to remind me. A fool vents all his feelings. Now think about it. I told you what a fool was. Was a fool? A fool wasn't somebody who didn't know better. A fool somebody who knows better and does wrong anyway. So the Bible says, a fool, he vents his feelings. What's it say about the wise man? But a wise man holds them back. Huh. Well, let's see. Paul said it like this in Ephesians chapter 4, somewhere in the 20s. Do not let a corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Oh. Does that mean let a few corrupt words proceed out of your mouth? Nope. It says, do not let a corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Only a word that's good for what? Edification. That it may give grace to him who hears. Now, does that mean I never confront? That's not what it's saying. It's saying the purpose of my confrontation is to build up, not to tear down. That doesn't mean I don't say something that somebody did was wrong. That's everywhere in the Bible. Jesus rebukes Peter, right? So it doesn't mean there's no rebuke. What does it mean? That the rebuke is done in grace for the effort of building up, not for destroying. Most of the time, if I vent about somebody, I'm not thinking about building them up at all. What about you? When you vent about somebody, is that what you're thinking? Oh, I want to build this guy up. I want to encourage this guy. No, I'm, I'm letting off steam, right? But what does it do? Robs my heart. He said in, in the Psalms, I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Now, when my spirit is overwhelmed, just a few Psalms earlier, just turn to the left to Psalm 61. Psalm 61 tells us, what do we do if we're overwhelmed? Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth do I cry for you. For when my heart is overwhelmed, what? Lead me to the rock. Where's the wise man build his house? On a rock. Where's the fool? On the sand. Where are you going to take it? Go to the rock. Well, i got a vent. Then I suggest you go to the rock. You go to the rock. And you make your request known unto God. And what will happen? He'll change your heart. He'll change your heart. So this is what happened to the psalmist, okay? So he's a huge problem. He's frustrated with the power of God and, 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 and God not moving, not working in his life. And so he complains and he loses uh, his spirit. He's overwhelmed. So let's see what happens. Verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. What do you think he's saying? You ever been so stinking frustrated you can't sleep? Oh yeah, so he's saying, God, you're holding my eyelids open. Would you just let go of my eyelids? Sometimes I feel like that. I just keep replaying things in my head. Does that ever happen to you guys? Replaying it, running it over and over in my head, and, and I can't get to sleep. And so he says, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled I can't speak. I don't even know what to say. I'm so, I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry. I'm so disappointed. 
I have considered <coughs> the days of old, the years of ancient times. What's that mean? I was looking back to the past and thinking about the good old days. I uh, remember the good old days. The older you get, the better you were. Isn't that how that works? We look back at the good old days. Nah, man, it was so nice back then. You never had to lock the door. Yeah, you let your kids play outside all night. Oh, wait, I still do that. Now, if you ever want to steal my truck, the keys are probably in it. Nobody wants to because they can hear you coming from two miles away, huh? But if you want to, it's there. You say, I want to get into Jackie's house. The door's open. I, we've been here six years. I can count on one hand how many times we locked the door. It's Idaho. Now, maybe that'll change. But the point is, this guy's going, oh, I'm thinking back to the good old days that were so much better. Were they really? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what he's doing. I'm thinking back to the times, ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. So, see the man-centric. He's thinking about, back then when God was with me, man, I, I, w- I could really sing. I could really sing about your deliverance. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart. And my spirit makes diligent search. So he starts meditating in his heart. He starts thinking about the old days. Now his spirit starts to churn within him a little bit. And where does he immediately go? He goes to verse 7. He says, will the, will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? In essence, is God done with me? Is it all over? And whenever we're in a time of trouble, and this particular trouble that he was in lasted 70 years, by the way. That's a long period of time. Most of us haven't been struggling with the same problem for 70 years. So, but he said, is this going to last forever? What was the answer? No. It's not going to last forever. But, why have I lost my spirit? Why have I lost my spunk? Why have I lost that spark within me? Go back. What was he doing? What was he doing that robbed him of his spirit? Complaining. I was complaining. And I lost my spirit. I was complaining. And I lost my strength. I was complaining. And I lost my ability to persevere. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm complaining. So, this is what's going on in his mind. Has God forgotten me forever? Have you felt like that? Have you gone through a, a, a tunnel that was long enough that you thought, Man, God, is it going to be like this forever? Is it going to be like this forever? That's how he feels. And then, as his spirit churns within him, in verse 10 it says, And I said, this is my anguish. This is my anguish. He starts to recognize, this is, this is all happening within me. This is birthed within me. It's my anguish. So he says, in strong contrast to living in this anguish, look what he says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. So you see him making a choice of will, right? I'm, I'm going to stop focusing on my complaint. And what's he going to focus on? I'm going to focus on 
the power of God. We just talked about it in a previous psalm. God is a mighty warrior, able to save, able to do anything, able to accomplish all things. So he says, I'm going I'm to turn my eyes, I'm going to turn my heart, I'm going I'm to change my view. Look at verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. So I'm going to remember the things that God has done, how God has moved. I'm going to put my eyes on what God has done in the past. And whenever the psalmists do this, they always go back to the same great deliverances. We're going to see the Red Sea. We're going to see God's deliverance in Mount Sinai when He spoke to the people. We're going to see God in His His greatest acts in the Old Testament of redemption. Why does he focus on acts of redemption? Because that's what he needs. I need redemption. I need God to take this darkness and turn it into light. I need God to take this anguish of my soul and make it joy. Think about what Jesus said Messiah came to do when he stood in a little synagogue in Nazareth and he read Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right? To preach good tidings. The gospel. To bind up the brokenhearted. To set the captives free. Scripture in Isaiah 61 says, I have come to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy, for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Now, you really think that promise has changed? Hasn't Jesus still come to give us beauty for ashes? Doesn't he still long to turn our sorrow to joy? But if our sorrow turns to joy or our heaviness turns to praise, is that only accomplished? Can that only be accomplished if you're allowed to remain central? Is it only accomplished if God supersedes all the problems that you're having? No. When when are you given beauty for ashes? When you get your eyes off yourself and on God. I took my eyes off my ashes and I put them on beauty. I have exchanged beauty for ashes. What about my joy for my sorrow? Get my eyes, my heart on the Lord. Who is able. What about praise instead of heaviness? I get my eyes on the Lord. I get Him central. I recognize that the central matter of existence is not me. The central matter of existence is Jesus Christ. And when he's in that right place, he gives us beauty for ashes. He changes our sorrow into joy. Because I can have joy no matter the circumstances if Christ is central. And that's what Asaph is learning here. That's what he's learning. I will remember... I'm going to see. And I want you to see what he does specifically. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Three things he's going to do. One, I will also meditate on all your work. What's it mean to meditate? Chew the cud, right? 
I'm going to chew on all the things you've done. Where is it that we can go to chew on all the things God has done? Right there, right? I'm going to meditate on all your works. I'm going to chew on all the things you've done. I'm going to pour in. Remember, was it? I always got to ask John the same thing. Elisha or Elijah? The pot of death. Elisha? So Elisha. The school of the prophets, they make him a pot of stew. You guys remember the story? Pot of stew. And, and so he goes to eat the pot of stew and they're like, don't eat that, man. It tastes like death. Now, whether it was actually poisonous or it just tasted really bad, we don't really know. What we know is what Elisha did. What did Elisha do? He took the meal. Took the meal, which symbolizes bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he takes that and he just sprinkles it in. And he keeps adding the meal and stirring it in. And adding the meal and stirring it in. And death comes out of the pot. How do we get death out of the pot? I'm the pot. How do I get it out of me? Put the word in. And the death comes out. I put Jesus in. And the death comes out. I put praise in. And it comes out. You get what I'm talking about? So what he says, first thing he does, I'll meditate on all your work. Second, I'll talk of all your deeds. So first he meditates. What's another word for talking? I'll witness. Right? Witness. Martus. I will talk about what you've done. I'll read about all you've done. Then he says, I'll talk about all you've done. So I'm going to meditate on the word. I'm going to witness about the word. I'm going to witness about (coughs) what God has done. What's the third one? And he says, I will talk of all your deeds and your way, O God, your way is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. He says, your way, the path you want me to walk is in your sanctuary. So you want me to to read the word, you want me to talk about the word, and then you want me to remember that your way, the the way of life, the way of existence, the way of, of going about life, that's in your sanctuary. What do we do in this sanctuary? We worship. So I meditate, I witness, I worship. And I exchange beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I really didn't do anything. I just took Jesus and poured him in. I poured him in so much that as I'm pouring him in, he comes out. How does he come out? In witnessing, talking about what he's done, and worship. Who is like you, God? Who could be greater than the Lord? Don't you hear the words of the psalmist? As as the heaviness of his heart changes, as his attitude changes, as he stops the venting and complaining, and he begins to be inspired... By the presence of God working and moving in his life. He says, you have declared your strength among the peoples. How many? All of them. You declared your strength. Romans 1. Everybody knows his divine power. You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people. He's talking about Israel too, right? Your people. God has redeemed his people. The sons of Jacob and Joseph. And he focuses on those two for a particular reason. 
Those two, as he's thinking back to God's redemption, are two people who said, Don't bury me here. But when God takes you out of here, bury me in the promised land. Where were they when they said that? Egypt, right? Jacob and Joseph. Don't leave my bones here. What are they saying? This is not our home. We have a future home that God's going to take us. The Lord's going to take us as a people to. So they're looking forward in faith to God's redemption from bondage to deliverance. Same thing spiritually that we are looking for today. His redemption from the bondage of sin to the deliverance to His presence. So he lays out in verse 16, he says, The water saw you, O God. What do you think he's talking about? Red Sea? The water saw you, <coughs> and they were, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds, they poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. What do you think he's talking about there? Your arrows flashing about. Thunder and lightning, storm, wind, rain, water. Could be referencing to the flood, but we're going to see in a moment. The voice of your thunder is like the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the great sea. So, the way through, the one way of deliverance, right? Was walking through the, the Red Sea. Your path in the great waters and your footsteps were not known. Now he's saying, look... The people came down and they're surrounded and the armies of Egypt is pouring down on them. And all they got is this water from them. They got nowhere to go. Can't go left. Can't go right. Can't go straight. They're caught between a rock and a hard place. They're surely going to perish. They didn't know what to do, but did God have a plan? Did God have a purpose? Did God redeem? So how's that different if it's us? If we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place with nowhere to go. Does God have a plan? Does God have a purpose? Will God redeem? Absolutely. His footsteps aren't known to us. So we just wait. Maybe He'll part the Red Sea. Maybe He'll bring us home. Maybe He's got other purposes that aren't even on the list of possibilities. But when it's time for us to walk the path He's laid out before us, will He show us? Absolutely, God will show us. Absolutely, God wants us to know and understand His will. What did He say in verse 20? You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So when the people didn't know where to go and what to do, did God show them? Yep. So you have Asaph sitting in Babylon, thinking about how things used to be in the old days when he lived in Israel and Jerusalem and life was good. Now he's in Babylon in another place and it seems like God's forgotten him and it, it's not really come together. Things aren't really changing. So he says, here I am. I was complaining and I was venting, but, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to remember when God's people in the past didn't know which way to go, they just waited on the Lord and He showed them. So, I'll wait on the Lord and He'll show me. And that's the proper application of the concept of the power of God and His ability to save and deliver lived out in our life. 
Because my life is not mine. This universe doesn't exist for my pleasure. This universe belongs to God. And this life is His too. I gave it to Him so He could use it as He sees fit. And whatever He takes me through, whether it is to lead me beside the still waters, or yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's all along His path, isn't it? So we walk the path, we walk the walk, and we trust God is able. He hasn't lost me. He hasn't forgot me. His hand is upon me. So what's my part? I praise Him. I meditate. I share. And it keeps my heart in the place it needs to be in. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.